Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. It's my absolute joy to welcome back my good friend Aaron Lazar, who is at the tail end of a great big book tour for his new book, Don't Let the Wind Catch You. Aaron, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Maggie. It's a pleasure to be here. Aaron? Yes. Um, when, can, can I just ask you to please open the show today by reading to us a little bit from your new book, Don't Let the Wind Catch You? Maggie, I would love to do that. I have Chapter 1 here all ready to go, and I'm just going to give you a little brief introduction so you'll know where we're coming from. Um, this is Don't Let the Wind Catch You, which is a sequel to Tremolo, Cry of the Loon, one of ten books in the Gus Lagarde series. These are mysteries, which I call country mysteries, and they're all mostly set in the Genesee Valley of western New York, near the Finger Lakes region. I have a short synopsis here I'll give you about the book. It's only 50 words, so it's just a brief one. But here we go. When Gus Lagarde befriends Tully, a cranky hermit in the woods who speaks to an Indian spirit, he doubts his sanity. But Penny rattles tin cups and draws in mirrors and Things change fast. Faced with long buried family secrets and danger, Gus must summon courage beyond his years to survive. All right, so there's the setup. Now we're going to jump right into Chapter 1. Chapter 1. We crept toward the old shack on our bellies, crab crawling over moss and oak leaves. Elsbeth breathed softly to my left, just out of sight. Siegfried took the lead, several feet ahead of me. Behind us, our horses stood tethered to maple saplings, their tails swishing against deer flies. Our equine friends munched steadily on sweet leaves with a rhythmic crunching sound. Do you think anyone lives here? Elspeth's whisper glanced off the air, soft as a breeze that rustled overhead. I pressed a finger against my lips to warn her. I think I heard something. I was glad I'd left Shadow at home. He would have betrayed us running all over the woods, baying at every new scent he found. Siegfried raised a hand, signaling us to stop. He'd heard it, too. It was a caning of sorts, a high-pitched wail that was speech, but not speech. Closer to song, but with no melody melody I recognized. Ice crawled down my spine and tingled in my toes. My heart sped to a staccato beat, pounding against the soft earth beneath me. I chanced to look at Elsbeth, whose eyes had gone wide with what some people might think was fear. But I knew better. Excitement lurked behind those big brown eyes. She didn't scare so easily now that she was 11. A puff of wood smoke escaped the chimney in a lazy tendril, spreading into gray softness that filled the air with the aroma of campfires and cold winter mornings. Whoever lived inside this remote ramshackle cabin has just started a cooking fire, for the scent was soon followed by the clanging of a cast-iron pan and the distinctive aroma of bacon. Siegfried glanced back at us, motioning toward a tumbled-down stone wall. He hopped to his feet and scrambled, chest tucked tightly to his knees. Although I was a full year older than the twins, I often let Siegfried lead. 
he was the one with the compass and orienteering skills and had taken us on several excursions into the forest behind the ambuscade. I trusted Siegfried like a brother I'd never had, and there was no jockeying for position between the three of us. No one was a leader all the time, and our natural gifts led us into the roles we were meant to have. The important thing was Siegfried always brought us out safely from our deep woods adventures. Elsbeth, who lay snug against me behind the stone wall, nudged me in the ribs and whispered so close to my ear it tickled. Someone's in there. A conversation had started up inside the cabin. I strained to hear it, trying to calm the heartbeat in my ears that pounded over the words I couldn't make out. One side was definitely a deep male voice. Gruff and playful, he seemed to be discussing plans for the day. The other side was silent. Either his wife or child had a really soft voice, or he was talking on the telephone. I scanned the area. Siegfried noticed and followed my gaze. No telephone poles or wires. No electricity. Unless he had one of those walkie-talkies like they used in the war, he must be talking to either a deaf-mute or a very soft-spoken person. Siegfried started to crawl around the edge of the wall. We followed as he crept closer to the eastern side of the shack. Aside from the front door, there was one window per wall. Nothing fancy, just plain old four-square windows with two cracked panes. The frames may have been painted at one time, but they were bare now. The front door looked solid enough, made from rough planks, but the roof dipped and waved near the chimney, and I imagined when it rained, it probably dripped from the ceiling into buckets. Globs of tar and different colored shingles were plastered over the roof in various spots. A beat-up old Ford pickup stood silent under the trees in the back. We reached the window and were able to hear better. The man's voice rumbled, giving me chills. Why don't you want me to go? Silence. Okay, so come with me. What's the big deal? More silence and then a groan from the man. Oh, nobody's going to see you. You can wait outside. I exchanged puzzled looks with the twins and tried to get a little closer to the window. The deep voice spoke again. What? Who's outside? I tensed. Siegfried's eyes grew round as fireballs. Elsbeth grabbed my arm and squeezed. Heavy footfalls thundered across the floor, and the window overhead flew open. The atomic blast of his voice came seconds before his head poked out the window. What in tarnation are you kids doing? Frozen in place, we stared at the man with the grizzled old face twisted in fury. The white tangled beard hung six inches beneath his chin, resting on a red and white checkered flannel shirt. Black suspenders looped over his shoulders, and his gnarled hands batted the air in front of his face. He yelled louder this time, making three crows caw and abandon their perch in the giant cottonwood overhead. Well, speak up. What the hell's going on here? Elsbeth spoke first, shocked into her native language. Astute me lied. When the man squinted his eyes in confusion, she recovered. Um, sorry, sir. We didn't think anyone lived here. We scuttled backwards on our hands and feet, our backsides scraping the earth like bouncing bulldozers. 
Siegfried jumped up and pulled his sister to her feet, and I stumbled back to the stone wall where my spine rammed against the stones. I winced, then scrambled to my feet and stared at the ground. We're sorry, mister. We were looking for a fort. The sound of a rifle cocking made me look up again. A long barrel poked out the window, aimed at my chest. If you kids aren't gone, by the kind time I count to five, you're dead meat. Now scat. I didn't know if he actually counted or not. The blood rushed in my ears and drowned out all sounds, including those of the three of us racing to our horses, swinging onto their backs, and galloping through the woodland trail to safety. And that's it, Baggy. What a great reading. Well, thank you. So tell me, ten books, um, every time you you write another one, you reveal another little piece of Gus, don't you? Yes, yes. I, I guess I get to know him better and better the more I write. Although he's he's so real in my mind, you know, he's, I mean, he's, I, I hate to say it, but there really is this parallel universe that, that lives inside me that has all these uh, very real to me people. Yeah, do you feel a little guilty when you haven't um, revisited him for a while, as if you've kind of left him in limbo somewhere? Oh, what a good question. Yeah, absolutely. Um Frankly, I feel that way about all three of my series. You know, I have Lagarde Mysteries, More Mysteries, and Tall Pines Mysteries, and each one is always begging for the sequel, and in my head I feel like I can't ignore this any longer. I have to go back to the poor, you know, Lagarde family or the More family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Do, do you stick little threads and hints into each one of those mystery series to try and reference the others? Do you like to kind of bring them together? I think I have noticed a few parallels. Yes. Yes, I do. Like, if, you'll, uh, if you remember, in uh, my very first book I wrote in the series actually was when Gus was an adult. He's um, actually um, a widower. He's mourning the loss of his wife, Elspeth, in Double Forte, book one. And in that book, I reference the fact that he used to go back to Maine, which uh, you see in Tremolo, and I reference his childhood, you know, on horseback, etc. So there are definite distinct links from book to book. But that said, Maggie, I try to write these books so that they will stand alone whether you've read any before or after, so you can just pick them up and read it as if it's its own story. Some people, like some fans, will say, no, 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 you have to read them in order. You should start with this one and go forward in time. And that's fine, um, but you don't have to. Hmm. Does Gus, because Gus is your first, isn't he? Does he hold a particularly yeah. special place in your heart? He does. Um, and Gus is there a limit up... to how many books you can... Sorry, I have told, yeah, I told myself... Um, a while ago, and it may have been a foolish thing, but I told myself that I want to write 100 books before I die, and I want them to be good books, not just, you know, junk. <laughs> so I do have this goal set, and I don't see why I can't go back in time and fill in Gus's life between, say, Don't Let the Wind Catch You, which is 1965 when he's 12, 
And the car, the first book of his adult life, you know, when he's 40s, I think I started him out when he's 47. Um, there's no reason why I can't fill in a book for every single year of his life if I so desire. Or I can keep going forward and wait until he's an old man or do spinoffs based on his uh, guest characters that he has. But, but Gus does hold a very special meaning because I created him when my dad died. I don't know if we talked about this uh, when we talked about Tremolo, but my father died in 1997, and it pretty much floored me, as you would expect. Um, and I decided to start this series as a tribute to him because he is very much like Gus. He, he was a music professor who lived in the country, who had a family with dogs and big gardens and always did right and loved the arts, you know. So really, Gus was a testimonial to my dad. Then when I started writing the books, a lot of me started creeping into the character because here I am writing first person from a guy about my age, you know, who lives in the country like I do. I happen to be a great deal like my father was. And so now Gus is sort of a curious amalgam of my father and me and sort of his own person now. Mm. That's such an interesting, um, I guess, addendum to the character that we know, too, this idea that, um, you know, that you're infusing him with this, you know, with your father and um, and how you feel about him and all of that. It's, a, it's almost a kind of immortality, isn't it? It is. It is. I, I thought of it as a, a kind of um, a nod to him, nod to my father. You know, when I started this series, he was a great mystery lover. He read mysteries. He's the one that introduced me to Dick Francis and John D. MacDonald and, of course, Agatha Christie and all the great British mystery writers. And uh, I never even considered reading or writing anything but mysteries because that was sort of what we did in my house. So, yeah, it's, it's a testimonial to him in a way. Hmm. And and how did you, I don't recall us talking about this, but, you know, take me back to how you got started in the first place all those years ago. And it's been a, a long time now since you started um, all of your series. But uh, how did you, what was the spark? How did they all begin? Well, you know, I always thought I would write a mystery series because I was such a fan. Um, but I really didn't think I would start until I retired until all the kids were grown and, you know, things were quiet again. But what happened was when my father passed away in 1997, like I said, it kind of uh, threw me for a loop. And I would go outside at work at lunchtime, and I'd go for these long walks. It was the fall, so I remember walking through the crispy leaves, and I would almost hear his voice coming through the leaves, you know, telling me he's going to be okay. And I was working through all these incredibly emotional um, feelings. And I would go back to my office, and uh, I don't know if my boss cared or not, because at the time I didn't care, but <laughs> I just I would write down these poems. They, they were god-awful poetry. It was terrible. But it was a venting of sorts, and it was like therapy in a way, and it felt really, really good. And as I was doing it, I thought, you know, maybe I should start that mystery series now. Maybe this is the time. And so I started, and once I unleashed those floodgates, Maggie, 
I could not stop. It was like I opened the door to this incredible um, annoying habit, or I guess you'd call it obsession. If I didn't get my writing time, I would get really cranky and I would get really resentful and I just, I needed it so badly. So I, I kind of considered it like cheap therapy and a good escape at the same time in a world where I could control what was happening. I could control my characters, when it, whereas, of course, in real life, I was very upset because I couldn't control anything. <laughs> Mm. Yes, and it's quite poignant. I mean, for for us as readers, knowing, and I won't give anything away, but knowing what happens later with some of the characters, not just Gus, but, you know, the other characters he interacts with and seeing them from a different angle and a different perspective. Well, you know, I'll I'll try not to give it away either. Yeah, right, right, right. We can say that because most people will know when they start Double Forte, um, Elspeth has been gone for four years, and that's the first book in the quote-unquote adult Gus series. Um, and I found, I wrote that first, and I wrote Tremolo, I think I wrote it sixth, actually, in the series. And I found that it was such a joy to be able to go back in time and meet this girl, have her alive as a child, and get to know her and flesh her out as a, a, a young personality, you know, to talk hear her talking and see her acting and see Gus kind of start falling in love with her a little bit. Oh, is that the rooster? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I was looking forward to that. Yeah. I I thought I'd add that to call it touch. I'm not pressing a button that makes that noise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. You're becoming very prolific. Um, They're they're coming out really quickly. Is the writing process getting easier for you? Uh, Yeah, it is. It is. I think, you know, the first five or six years, I I just let the stories flow. And I didn't – I did pay attention on the side to the skill and to the process. But as time went on, a lot of the writing tips that I learned from my mentors – um, kind of became assimilated. And then as as time went on now, it's just, you know, you just write it, and it's pretty close to being being good when you write it the first draft. The first, first few books, of course, I had to rework and rework and rework and rework. The more I learned about, you know, um, forbidden words or forbidden passages or ways that made you look like an amateur, you know, I was I used to panic and go back and change everything so that it was not amateurish, you know. <laughs> But now it's easy. It's not bad. It's just fun now. And I guess, you know, you don't have to do character maps or anything because you've already been doing that for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, it's kind of fun. Um, I was I, – I didn't want to be forever stuck with just three sets of characters, you know, with my three different series. And this year um, I decided to try something totally different. And so I've had the pleasure in the last couple months of writing a new book – that is actually a love story, and it has totally different people in it, which has been a great joy to me. And, and you don't feel a little bit like you're betraying Gus and Sam? A little, a little, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, but it's not. It's it's fun because I know I'll come back to it. I mean, after all, I gave Gus ten books. I mean, what does he want? You know? <laughs> yes, yeah, well, he can't complain. So That's talk right. to me a little about your schedule. Do you do you have a daily writing schedule? Do you stick to, uh, you know, sort of tight hours? Yes, yes, I do. Um, 
Well, first of all, I do still work a day job. Um, I work as an engineer up in the city, so I have to leave the house around 8 every morning. Now, um, last year I found out I had type 2 diabetes, and it wasn't bad. It's, you know, totally in control now, but I had to learn to actually do my three- to four-mile walk every single morning. So I get up at uh, 4.30 or 5, and I run around the house and do my daily chores, you know, like if I have dishes left over from the night before or the cat pans or making the coffee, um, making my lunch for the day, all those little nitpicking chores I do. Then I sit down and I have uh, typically from 5 to 6.15, which is my time, and that's when I'll try to hardly go through my emails and check up on Facebook, and then I give myself about an hour to write. Now, if I'm in the middle of a book uh, and I know what's happening, I'll go right in to the chapter I wrote the day before, and I'll write another chapter. Typically, it's like about a 1,000 words that it might take me half hour to 45 minutes to actually write it, and then I'll do a little bit of... Um, you know, I might start the next chapter or go back and do a quick edit to make sure I haven't made any really stupid mistakes. Uh, and then I go to work and come home. And at night, sometimes, if I'm not too tired, I'll write. Uh, my wife and I usually go upstairs together and she'll put on a show and I have the laptop open. But I'm not as prolific or as focused at night. I'm really a much better writer in the dark morning hours. Mm. Yes, and I guess your work, it's, it, it, it does reflect a lot of the, the, um, the day around you, in effect. You know, there's a lot of garden, there's, you know, there's family, yeah. there's music. So, you know, I guess all the things that surround you during the day get into the, into the work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I find that uh, my, you know how your brain is kind of like a sponge, and you absorb things around you, um, I frequently will include, I don't know, funny little scenes from my grandchildren. Um, I always include all the nature and gardening stuff that I live. Um, you know, I, I live in the Genesee Valley here, uh, just south of Rochester, and it's it's right next to the Finger Lakes. We're, we're close to Canisius Lake. So um, the places that my characters run and walk and uh, ride their horses are places that I either did, you know, rode horses also um, in earlier years or that I hike daily. Um, I use those same trails and woods and the, the visions they have and the views, although I make up stuff. I mean, the uh, the Ambuscade, which is the historical monument, which is a, about two and a half miles down the road from me, um, it actually is a monument up on a hill in a field, just like in the book, but there are woods behind it, but I, of course, made up the whole thing about the trails the kids ride and Tully's cabin and the old uh, family house they find that's abandoned. Um, I don't really know what's in those woods. I have never gone that far because I think it's private property. <laughs> but it's all from my real life. Yep. Yeah. I, I'm expecting you to come out with a cookbook at some time in the near future as well. That actually is on my list. Um you know, everything that Gus cooks, in, in the adult Gus books, Gus does like to cook, and actually I make him cook whatever I just made that weekend so that I don't just think about it. So there's a lot of good old uh, kind of country cooking, and I always thought it would be fun to have a Gus Lagarde cookbook someday. 
Oh, that, we'll have to look forward to that. Um, and now you've got another book, Sanctuary, coming out later this year, and, and two more for 2014. Um, is everything sort yes. of done and in the marketing pipeline? Yes, yes. All three of those books are all done. They're just sitting with my publisher waiting for the right time to come out. Um, the next book, Sanctuary, is the third book in my Tall Pines Mysteries, which is a little more, more of a contemporary um, not quite chick lit, but, you know, closer to uh, a woman's point of view uh, when, when it's told is from a woman's point of view. And it takes place up in the Adirondack Park in the, the northern New York area, six million acre park. This new one, Sanctuary, is really fun because I got to uh, explore the um, Native American traditions a little more with the help of one of my friends who's a, an Indian historian. And she gave me information about um, prayer ties and smudging a room to clear the spiritual energy. And I was able to incorporate a lot of that into this book, which features uh, a young Seneca girl who's on the run and finds sanctuary with uh, my two main characters, Quinn and Marcella Hollister. So that book's ready to go. Um, There's also a sequel to that, which will be out the next year called Murder on the Sakandaga, and I actually allow myself to do a serial killer story with that one, with the same characters. Um, and then the next Gus Lagarde book comes out, and that's an adult cuss book. It's called Virtuoso. It's going to be um, my art mystery book. So I'm going to feature, you know, counterfeit, is it counterfeit or not, a, a Monet painting that's found, and there's uh, quite a few secrets revealed in this book as well. And also Gus's young stepdaughter Shelby um, is now becoming a young woman and it's driving him crazy and there's some issues there with a tenor from the Eastman School of Music who has his eye on young Shelby and Gus is not too happy about it. Mm. So you can, I guess you just decide that there's an area you want to explore a little bit and, uh, and off you go. Exactly, yeah. Well the whole Shelby thing who's his, uh, I think I turned her 15 or 16 in that book. Um, she's actually based on my having had three teenage daughters and all the harrowing experiences that I went through being a dad of three teenage girls. That's where I got my gray hairs, Maggie. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> We've got teenagers around, too. Um, so you've got some really cool, cool, innovative promotions going on. Um, Lazar Fever, I think, is one of my favorites. And I, I prefer it infinitely to Zebra Fever. Um, tell me a little bit about some of those. Oh, well, you know, I finally have uh, made the jump, and I've hired a couple of publicists who are wonderful gals. I have a street team called Lazar Fever, and, you know, the saying is, you know how you say got milk? We say got Lazar Fever, you know? And uh, this young lady named Eileen Aroma, she's my uh, publicist for that uh, venture, she made up this funny little uh, caricature, I'm sure you've seen it, of my head on Gus Lagarde's body riding his horse when he's 12 years old, and I thought it was a riot. But that's really anybody who wants to be on the what they call a street team, which is basically a bunch of people who are willing to you know, uh, like and link and um, share posts on Facebook and tweet, things like that. If you're willing to do that for an author, you sign up to be a member of the team, and then you can win prizes. Every month I'll be giving away stuff, um, either gift certificates or books or, you know, whatever we come up with. Um, And then the other event is being run by 
innovative online book tours, and that's Vicki Dole. She's also fantastic. She held a uh, really fun release day party for me on August 15th, which was on Facebook. And what, what they mean by release day party is you open up the the uh, event for, like, say, three hours, and people come in and comment, and she asks questions, and they ask questions, and we all post pictures and talk about the books or horses or life or whatever. You know, it was just a riot. And that's it's a good way to draw people in, you know, to see if they'd be interested in your book. And um, we also did the virtual book tour. Vicki did that for me, which was one month of appearing almost every day on people's, like, book bloggers' Uh, websites, you know, where you do either a guest blog or an interview or they post an excerpt of your book or you um, just have a featured um, blurb that they'll put up for free or a review. Um, yeah, it's been uh, wonderful and crazy and uh, I'm almost glad it's over in a way. I, I need a little time to catch my breath. Yes, and, and of course this is part of that. So uh, she's been doing a great job. So look, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I told you it will go fast. Um, Aaron, Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, listeners, you, don't forget to join us next month on the Compulsive Reader Talks when we interview Brian Castro, who will be joining us to talk about his latest book, Street to Street. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.